Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that the Kirby Lang Institute for Christian Ethics is going to be hosting a webinar on Tuesday, November 24th. It's going to be focused on the doctrine of creation. There's a new textbook that's going to be coming out by Craig Bartholomew and Bruce Ashford. I've been invited to give a brief presentation. There's going to be nine international speakers, and we'll be talking about why and how a robust doctrine of creation, understanding of creation, helps us to engage today. So I would love to have some of our audience uh, come. It should be a lot of fun. I personally will be tackling the topic of creation and suffering, and I'm also going to be considering briefly the role of Sabbath. So I'm really looking forward to it and just wanted to share that with our audience. We're going to be putting a link to the Kirby Lang Institute for Christian Ethics on the episode webpage, and you'll have more information about how you can watch the webinar there. Welcome to Two Christians and a Jew, the podcast where we look at how Christians and Jews read the Hebrew scriptures differently and what difference it makes for our lives. I'm your co-host, Mayor Simcha Panzer. I'm Frank, and what we're going to do is try to solve a, a little riddle about what do two donkeys and the apocalypse have in common? I'm Jen Jones, and I am really excited to welcome my good friend, Laura Robinson, today. Hi, guys. Laura is a PhD candidate at Duke. She is finishing up her dissertation, I believe, as we speak, but she is probably more well known for her work as the co-host of the New Testament Review podcast. And they now also have a YouTube channel. Is that right, Laura? Yes. Please like and subscribe. Uh, we know we've um, we've been slowly expanding our little media empire over the last year. We've had the New Testament Review podcast for about two years. Uh, this is a review-based show where we go over uh, classic articles in New Testament studies that have had a lot of influence. And uh, the, U the YouTube show has expanded to be a bit more topical. We have a series on non-canonical books. Uh, we just do series on interesting topics topics in the New Testament and just try to make New Testament scholarship more available to more folks. Including a whole series on Matthew, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. We just, uh, I, I just completed a Matthew series. Uh, my dissertation is on Matthew. So it's, it's, uh, it's a lingering obsession of mine. So just did a couple of videos on that. Yeah. In a couple months, you may want to never see Matthew again. I'm sure that will happen. <laughs> but... I've listened to several of the Matthew videos several times. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. That's wonderful. Which ones have you listened to, Mayor? Uh, so let's see. I listened to the one on Matthew and anti-Semitism, which mm -hmm. I think was the last one in the series. Yeah. I listened to, I know there, there was a second Matthew video that I saw. And then the, the one that I, the first one that I saw actually, and the one that's most germane to what we want to talk yeah. with you about now is uh, is the one about Matthew's two donkeys. Mm -hmm. So well, it's a uh, it's very nice to know that the videos are being appreciated and watched uh, overseas, no less. So yeah, yeah. I got to tell you, like that that Matthew video about the two donkeys. What I loved about it was how you were walking through these different like methods of interpreting it. And at one point you were saying, well, you know, we see how in the Hebrew Bible there's lots of parallelism. And so you might think that the second repetition of talking about donkeys is simply done for 
is done for poetic reasons, as it's done many times in the Hebrew Bible. And you are, you're treating the parallelism as, well, obviously, the parallel statement of a thing is going to be saying the same thing. And it made me so nervous for <laughs> reasons which will become obvious in like three more sentences that I say. And then maybe like 10 minutes after that, you came around and you're like, but actually rabbinic interpretation doesn't work that way at all. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yes. yeah. And and when you said that, I was like, ah, oh, this is so good. Like, wow, <laughs> she gets us. <laughs> <laughs> No, I've I've read a lot of the Mishnah for my dissertation, so I've gotten to I've gotten to see this in action. Uh, so uh, that's uh, very very rewarding, uh, and it keeps us honest in the field of New Testament studies. So yeah, I've read the New Testament a few times in a few different versions in English, and my, my in a few different language. languages. Yeah, like I've I've read it in French and Spanish twice, and I've read it in Portuguese, and I never once once caught there's two donkeys really really this was one of those things when the topic came up i'm like no it, no it doesn't <laughs> there are two donkeys <laughs> it can be hard to hard to catch the donkeys as you know from saul you know you can search for days and not find donkeys. <laughs> <laughs> so so when i find out like wait a minute wait a minute there's two donkeys and hold up oh, snap, there's not even some consistency, like, and then, oh, wait, Zechariah 9, and, like, I, I've taught on the Minor Prophets before, yeah, and I've missed all this. Yeah, there's another donkey the whole time. So. Right. It's like, <laughs> it's like, there's, there's layers to this, like, ogres have layers, cakes have layers, there's layers to the donkeys, so... It's really interesting because I think that goes to show how strongly the impulse to uh, harmonization comes when we read the synoptic gospels. And we see this a lot in textual transmission that uh, when somebody is making a copy of a text of the New Testament from the synoptic gospels, they'll often just kind of bring other stuff in. We just have these texts in our head and we visualize them. And it's so easy, even in the act of reading Matthew, to just kind of glance over this stuff. So I think that there's such a strong impulse to harmonization when we look at synoptic gospels. Um, hold on, hold on. Can, I, can I stop you there? When you're saying synoptic yeah. gospels, what, what does synoptic mean? Oh, sure, yeah. So the synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we call them the synoptic gospels because they have such a strong literary relationship that you can read them alongside each other. Order is extremely, the, the order is extremely similar between the three of them. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of the language is similar. Uh, there are long verba verbatim streams, uh, strings of agreement between them. So it, we know they have a literary relationship with each other because this just isn't the kind of content that you know shared oral tradition produces so that's why we call them synoptic because you can look along you can put them all alongside each other and uh, see the similarities and differences between them so let's step back because you know we've all been reading about matthew 21 5 and the donkeys and we've all watched laura's show on youtube and we've been digging into zachariah but let's step back for the audience and give them just a quick overview we're talking about matthew Matthew 21, 5, one of the fulfillment texts mm -hmm. in Matthew. And then we're also talking about its its citation or use of Zechariah 9, 9 in particular. So Laura, do you want to give us a quick overview so that our audience knows what we're talking about? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in the the, the source text for the what, what we commonly call the triumphal entry of Jesus, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, followed by his followers who uh, cheer him as the son of David and say, Hosanna, uh, he does this in the Gospel of Mark. 
Mark. This is our source text for it. Uh, Jesus does this uh, riding a donkey. He he is outside of Jerusalem and he asks his disciples to go into Jerusalem and they will find a donkey who no one has ever sat on. And he says to untie the donkey and bring it to him. And if anyone stops you, say the Lord needs it. Uh, so they bring him the donkey and he rides it in. Luke, something very similar happens. They go in, they get the donkey and they bring him back. In Matthew, something very surprising happens. Uh, Matthew tells us that Jesus tells his disciples, go into the city and you will find a mother donkey and it's baby colt donkey and you're going to get them both and you're going to bring them out here so they go and they get them both so they get two donkeys and then they put their coats on both donkeys and mark they put the coats on the only donkey they have and matthew they put their coats on both donkeys which is what you do to saddle a donkey functionally and then jesus rides them both into jerusalem and the syntax uh matthew is quite clear Jesus rode both donkeys. Like Matthew doesn't, it's very common for people to try to maneuver around this, around, around the visual by saying, well, when Jesus sat on them, he sat on the coats, the plural coats, right? He sat on them, but the coats are on both donkeys. So to sit on the coats, you would need to be on both donkeys. So Matthew's pretty insistent on this point, and he's very consistent throughout in all of his language that both donkeys are involved in this process. Why does this happen? Why does Matthew have two donkeys when one donkey would presumably do just fine? When we look back at Zechariah, the passage that Matthew is calling on for what he calls his fulfillment citation, we can talk more about uh, his fulfillment quote. We can talk more about what fulfillment is in Matthew in a bit. Matthew says that this process was fulfilling a piece a, a quote from scripture in Zechariah where uh your king is coming to you humble on a donkey on a uh, um and then on a colt the son of a female donkey so in the latter verse you have you, you have two donkeys in both lines, uh, but then you have a female donkey specified in the second line uh, because the colt is the Jenny's child. Jenny is the word for a female donkey. I learned it in the process of making that show. So. If, I can throw a, if I can throw a wrench into that. Yeah, maybe. go for it. The language is actually a he donkey son of female donkeys, plural. It, oh, you're right. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're yeah, right. Which I don't want to say anything about donkey marriage or anything like that but um there is a great concern in the rabbinic tradition and it's there are lots of suggestions to this directly in in verses throughout throughout the hebrew scriptures they were very concerned about the pedigree of the animals that that were using in particular for yeah. sacrifices but you know it just it struck me that well maybe we're talking about a multi-generational descent here we want to be very clear that this is a donkey and not a mule and yeah. I would I would like to say something really quick on donkey marriage. Uh, I'm a Wikipedia expert on donkeys now. <laughs> what I've learned is that first of all, donkeys have been domesticated. They started getting domesticated in Egypt, particularly. But the disposition of a purebred donkey is very different from the disposition of a a mule. When we start breeding donkeys with horses, their disposition is not the same. I uh, started reading through this, uh, interpreting the minor prophets by Robert Chisholm, just because I was curious. And it talks about the fact that um, the king is depicted as gentle and riding on a donkey and riding a donkey is consistent with royal status. And that in Near Eastern literature, the donkey sometimes appears as the mount of princes or kings. They're riding the donkey rather than a war horse to symbolize peace. What I learned from reading up on that is that any pedigree with a horse would have meant that this could have been a warring king. So regardless of interpreting this in like the modern lens uh, or 
uh, a Jewish lens, like, yeah, the pedigree is super important. It's got to be a purebred donkey. And mm -hmm. we've got to mention like, well, the mom is there. So that's how you know it's like. That's how you know it's just a donkey. Yeah. That's how well, you know and donkey. it's interesting that you bring up that take on Chisholm because I was actually reading a little bit about this morning as well. This idea that the donkey is tied to royal imagery. You do see a few mentions of it in the ancient Near Eastern literature, but it's not that common again, but I think you, whether you wind up adopting that this is actually a motif within the near Eastern literature or not, I, I think that's, it's debated, although it's commonly been said. So you're not off and Chisholm's not off totally in left field. There's just a discussion around it, yeah. but either way, the key here is this is not militaristic period. Right. Exactly. Which to me is going to get into some interesting questions about the translation, which I've already kind of said, oh, this is interesting. So we can get into that in a little bit. The literary context of the prophets and why this animal is chosen to depict the king, that's a whole conversation. One thing I would want to say about why a donkey in the Gospels, I think there's a very strong chance that this is a historical reminiscence. So just what animal are you going to be able to go find in Jerusalem? You know, I think a donkey would probably be your best bet. That's a fairly common domesticated animal. So I think there's a fairly good chance that that's part of the logic uh just that this is a historical reminiscence but um you know again that doesn't satisfy all of our historical questions with Zechariah itself well and I know that as we were talking a little bit about your episode and about Matthew Mayor mm -hmm. had some questions specifically what is going on with these fulfillment texts and I think it's yeah we've read Matthew enough times that we're like oh yeah and we just take it for granted it's his thing yeah but, yeah but I think that yeah. hermeneutically there's some very interesting things going on so I guess yeah. Marin Laura, this might be yeah. your discussion. Yeah, I'd, I'd I'd love to ask you about that. that yeah, for sure. Fulfillment text. So, can you can you give me a like what is that idea? Because right. to me it's, it seems very foreign to me. Right. Yeah. So this is a structure that's pretty. Um, th this is very characteristic of Matthew. It doesn't really mm -hmm. show up in the other synoptics. Oh, um, so Matthew likes to say uh, when something happens in the story, and it when he's writing it down, when something reminds him of something in the Old Testament, uh, Hebrew Bible, he he says that this happened in order to fill the word of the prophet. Uh, except one time he has to fulfill the word of the Lord, but other times it's the prophet. Um, and then sometimes he will name the specific prophet, so Isaiah or Jeremiah, and then he will have a quotation from this passage, sometimes lightly edited, sometimes uh, you know he redacts it for his own purposes. Um, it's commonly mixed text types. Sometimes he follows the Septuagint, sometimes he follows the uh, Masoretic text, sometimes he follows a Targum, sometimes it's a bunch of them at once. Um, so oh, wow. he, which again <laughs> suggests that Matthew is probably quite a polyglot or he was working in a community of people who had a lot of access to Semitic languages. Mm. Um, so he, he tends to mix it up quite a bit. Uh, and then he'll have that quote that Jesus fulfilled. So there's a few ways of looking at why Matthew thinks Jesus fulfilled these passages. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the historical ways to read this, you know, I mean, the, the non-critical confessional reading, of course, is that, well, the Old Testament predicts it and then Jesus does it. You know, which I don't think is terribly satisfying for anybody who is interpreting Matthew. Um, mm -hmm. 
And then there's there's another stream of tradition that basically sees Matthew is just wholesale proof texting. You know, he's just flipping through his Bible and finding anything that he thinks is, you know, possibly related to Jesus and saying, well, you know, this is clearly a prophecy to Jesus and writing it forward. But I think when you put Matthew in conversation with, um, you know, other eschatological Jewish sectarian movements like uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, Mm -hmm. you see this tendency among eschatological Jewish groups to read their scriptures in light of what is happening around them and mm-hmm. to try to find new significance in them. So I think that's a lot of what Matthew is, what Matthew is doing is he's telling the story. He is being reminded of texts he knows and is turning back and looking through them. So, you know, Jeremiah 31 is one that shows up in the, uh, in Matthew two. So the Matthew's nativity story, you have a bunch of fulfillment texts in a row. One is the Isaiah seven passage that the, virgin young woman will conceive a child and you will call him Emmanuel. And then yeah, when that's we get, a, that's a big one. Isaiah. That's a, yeah, yeah, that's that, a loaded that, one. Uh-huh. Yeah. That, Let's that word that is for another day. We'll never <laughs> I mean, start like, talking about Isaiah seven. <laughs> yeah, we could absolutely, we could do that okay, for a Christmas like, special. So <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't expect it to be that loaded or that complicated. Oh really? Oh yeah. No, this yeah. is, this is I was a just going to point out that no. the word isn't the word for virgin. That's that is very true. <laughs> that <laughs> is the Greek, right? Yeah, it's the because uh, the Parthenos, uh, and then you've got the Simicus translation of. Uh, so you're saying that Isaiah. the word uh, what is it? It's Alma, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's Alma. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That Alma got translated into the Septuagint is Parthenos uh, as Parthenos, which means yes. virgin. Yes, and that's how that idea got absorbed. Oh wow! Right, that's, yeah. that's kind of the chain of uh, connection. Oh. Um, and then Symmachus has in the Septuagint, he has Neonis, uh for the young woman instead of Parthenos. Okay, Basically. so let's pause. Symmachus oh. is another oh, version of the Septuagint. <laughs> yeah. Ah, okay. So okay. We have the original translation of the Old Greek, and then we have the Septuagint or the Old Greek, as it sometimes also called and then we will also have later revisions or what we sometimes call recensions and the famous Symmachus is one of the three famous later versions of the Septuagint which oftentimes either improve the style or actually bring the Greek translation closer Mm -hmm. to a Hebrew forelaga or Hebrew source text. Oh that's like the Yiddish translation of Shakespeare. It's subtitled as uh, the works of Shakespeare translated and improved. <laughs> Basically. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, that works. Well, and there are Matthew scholars who have actually posited that Symmachus is aware of some Christologized readings of Isaiah and has actually worked on improving the translation to solve that problem, basically. Mm. Um, so uh, where was I? I got down a rabbit hole. Symmachus' oh, <laughs> so- translation oh, yeah. of alma yeah Wait, so- hold on hold on hold on maybe, maybe i mean i i don't want to end this prematurely but i no i, I wanted to get back to eschatological reading oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah 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 um so another great example of that is in the in the birth narratives when you get into matthew 2 uh once uh jesus is born in bethlehem and herod is uh presiding over jerusalem and the wise men come uh, seeking the king, Herod tries to use them to find Jesus so they can kill him. And at any rate, an angel warns Joseph to escape to Egypt with Jesus and Mary, which prompts this very Moses-like uh, situation where Herod orders the deaths of all 
male children ages mm. two and under in Bethlehem. So there's this very obvious callback to the Moses story, mm -hmm. right? You know, mm -hmm. sort of recasting Jesus as a new Moses. Um, but once mm. Jesus goes to uh, Egypt, uh, we get two fulfillment texts in a row, one about the travel to Egypt, uh, which is the Hosea out of Egypt, I called my son. And then once the uh, massacre of the Bethlehem children happens, uh, you have a callback from Jeremiah 31, which is a uh, voice crying in Rama, Rachel weeping for her children. Mm -hmm. And it looks like what's happening there, you know, one theory of why did Matthew pull this specific verse uh, to say that this was fulfilled by the killing of the children in Bethlehem is, you know, Jeremiah 31 is, is largely about ideas of exile and return, which are sort of figured in this image of going into Egypt and then being called out. So, you know, Matthew has these images, these motifs in his head. And mm -hmm. when he's looking back at Jeremiah, then he sees this passage about weeping for your children and then thinks oh aha this is a passage that has been fulfilled so it's you know it's not a it's not like an easy one-to-one -one correspondence of matthew thinking oh well then kids are killed in the old testament he writes it you know there's a lot of motif borrowing there's a lot of you know things inspiring ideas of other things uh, and we don't know exactly where all of these came from but we know mm. that matthew is very creatively recasting Jewish scripture to see it as newly relevant to his new context. Mm. So I guess like if I can dig into this idea of a fulfillment text, a yeah. little, it strikes me as to, to put it bluntly, like a very bad reading of Jeremiah to do that because yeah. Yeah. that, that text there is very clearly talking about a whole people being mm -hmm. brought out of Egypt, not yeah. about, you know, one family. Yeah. And he's he's talking about Egypt in conjunction with his exile to Egypt mm -hmm. right after the destruction of the temple there. Well, and this is a question for Laura, because I can remember we've had in the past some conversations about Christian or New Testament understandings of Messiah. And I haven't spent any time on this. And I would love Laura's take, having spent more time in the New Testament, because now I do Old Testament. But this idea that Messiah, you know, you've got in the Old Testament, you've got the king is representing the entire nation to some extent. Mm -hmm. The entire nation is held responsible for the good king or the bad king that we see this history playing out in Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. But then I've heard discussions where Messiah in the New Testament is recapitulating and not just taking on this corporate responsibility like the king would, but that they're recapitulating the history of Israel to some extent. Yeah. I don't know if that's a valid understanding or if that's just something that we heard that's now been said, oh, no, that's not right anymore. Yeah. So I love Laura's take on. Yeah, for that sure. kind of gets it some of what you're bringing up, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, just to, uh, to answer what Mayor said, you know, that it's clearly not you know, the e Egypt, the Egypt passage is clearly not talking about the individualized son of God being called out. You are absolutely correct. And no one can accuse Matthew of being a good historical critical exegete. Like, <laughs> no one can accuse Matthew of that. Uh, that also wasn't his project. This... That's not what right, he's saying. Right, for, right, yeah. right, yeah. right. But I think what you see in the ways in which Matthew is sort of, you know, recasting the Hebrew Bible, like in a really 
in a really, you know, free rereading, you might even describe it as sort of like a free Christologized rereading. There are two motifs that Matthew really likes to use to recast Jesus and sort of typologize him to ascribe significance to him. Uh, mm -hmm. One is the new Moses motif. Uh, Jesus, uh, Matthew loves to ascribe mosaic imagery to Jesus. So uh, the Sermon on the Mount is the classic example of this. Mm -hmm. Jesus comes down from the mountain with Torah, his his teaching, and he gives this authoritative pronouncement from the from the mountain. Uh, you have the massacre of the children of Bethlehem, which is very similar to the beginning of the Exodus story. Um, you have uh, Jesus fasting for forty days in the desert before he gets his teaching, very similar to Moses on Sinai. Long story short, Matthew loves those, and Matthew really likes the idea of Jesus as sort of embodying the Israel idea, right? So coming out of Egypt, out of Exodus, personally, is a great example of this or being baptized in the Jordan is a great example of this like Matthew really loves to take these classic Exodus conquest narratives uh, and put them into Jesus uh, there's a great David Sim I think it's David Sim if it's not David Sim whoever wrote this article I'm so sorry uh, somebody who uh, <laughs> argues that the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's gospel when Matthew says to go into all the nations uh, he gives us from a, this command from a mountain and he says to go into all the nations, uh, you know, preaching Jesus's message that there are conquest images and conquest echoes tied up in there that he's sort of this like new Joshua figure almost. So this is something that Matthew just loves doing. Matthew loves attaching these Moses, Exodus, Israel tropes and putting them in the person in the character of Jesus. So that's sort of his literary project. It's really kind of a case of where what Matthew's doing is he's got this knowledge of scripture and he's just looking at historical events that are fairly recent for him. Mm -hmm. And he's just using his knowledge of history and he's kind of applying that into somewhat current events that'd be a reasonable way for a layman to kind of understand that. i think that's fairly fair you know and, and i think that you see this I, I think it's easy to find all kinds of analogies of this of finding your own context in your scripture you know like this happens in american churches every day you know like how many times have you been to a church where uh america suddenly became israel in the old testament right you know like this is a fairly common phenomenon with scriptural texts and i'm not saying it's good or bad i'm just saying this is a very normal way for people to relate to their scriptures well and that fits yeah. with some of the conversations that i've had with mayor in the past actually talking about how as you were reading some of these texts or we were talking about Passover this past spring and mm -hmm. talking about we are this people, we are the people who are being called out of Egypt and this idea of identifying, it's a little bit different than what we're talking about, yeah. about, you know, Americans interpreting themselves as Israel, but this idea mm -hmm. that we are part of the story and that this is our yeah. story and that we're participating somehow. So yeah. I don't necessarily think it's all bad. Yeah. No, I don't either. From a critical right. standpoint, we're going to have fits and say, right. you can't do that. But right. I think from a hermeneutical standpoint, it would be really interesting to hear Mayor about some of how, how Jews read, not necessarily these particular texts, but this idea that we are participating in this story. We are part of it. Yeah, sure. The, the basic thing there in terms of Passover, that's a good place to focus, is that we have a mitzvah. We have a, a commandment to basically relive 
the exodus every year. And so it's it's not just this kind of uh, homiletic move where we decide, well, okay, the rabbi has to say something in synagogue, uh, so he better say, you know, and it's not just that we went out of Egypt all that time ago. You too can go out of Egypt this year. No, no, no. He's not just trying to come up with something exciting to say. He... Uh, Maybe you hear the music in the background. It's very exciting. There's a wedding going on across the street. Oh, really? Um, yeah, yeah. It's not very good music, though. They're not in our audience. <laughs> no, they, they aren't. I don't think so. It's not just that the rabbi is looking for something to say. It's that there, there's actually a mitzvah incumbent on us to see ourselves as going out of Egypt every year. Mm-hmm. That's part of it. That we're we're actually spiraling through these patterns over and over again, and that that's a very ancient idea. So mm-hmm. Matthew's project of reading Jesus that way makes a great deal of sense to me mm-hmm. uh, in that way. And then Jen, what you were saying before about the king being a kind of oh, let's see if I remember the correct rhetorical term, uh, synecdoche. Is that right? Synecdoche. Uh, synecdoche or yeah. or metonym. I. I forget the when you have a part that represents Where he's corporately representative. Yeah, he's representative yes, yes. of corporate communal Israel as a whole. That's a very powerful idea that that goes very deep in the Hebrew scriptures for how we understand the nature of kingship. So that's not just a symbolic thing. There are like very specific things that I can point to, including um, the weird mess up with Shaul. Uh, sorry, with Saul. Um, not killing the king of Amalek, Agag. Like, why Why wouldn't he do that? Yeah. Right. So, like, all this has to do with how you understand the nature of kingship. And and Shmuel, Samuel, when he talks with uh, with Saul about his screw-up, talks out these, these precise, pre- precisely these ideas about how do you see the nature of a kingship? How do you see the nature of your kingship, uh, Saul? You're so small in your own eyes. It's like, no, you're the king of Israel. Right? You have to understand that you you have that corporate responsibility and Saul keeps running away from that. But that, that's just one example where we see that idea of corporate representation in the king popping up. But so like I can see how Matthew is putting all this together. The thing that, that I find so disturbing about the fulfillment prophecies or mm-hmm. fulfillment texts is some of them that you brought up now, I, I think are, are less disturbing. But the particular one that we're focused on with the donkeys, mm-hmm. donkey, donkeys, okay, together with donkey mothers, like this thing just seems so contrived. Listen, I mean, I, I live in Jerusalem. I can get a white donkey and go riding into the old city. I mean, like, you know, that doesn't make me the Messiah. <laughs> You know? um, I don't know if Matthew knows what color the donkey is. But, uh, okay, well, we, we have we have a white donkey and other sorts. Oh, you have a white donkey. Okay, well, he'll, yeah. he'll work. Has anyone, yeah. has anyone ever ridden him, though? But, uh, so. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's that's a whole thing. I mean, that, that evokes the, the idea of the, the red cow. The, uh, yeah. 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 That's, that, a, that's, that's an interesting, interesting resonance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, um, you know, I... I I'm not really qualified or able or interested in sort of um, 
critiquing it as an aesthetic choice, you know, uh, that, that I, I don't really know if I feel qualified to do that. What I do think is happening here, you know, and, and I'm not sure what the level of the contrivance we're talking about here. As I said, I think there's a very good chance this is a historical memory, uh, that this was something Jesus did to present himself as this apocalyptic figure to Jerusalem and sort of announces uh, arrival. You know, I'm thinking of that Schweitzer. It, yeah. That makes uh-huh. it even worse. It's yeah. Even- no, no, I, right. Yeah, it's yeah. Like, okay, now I'm going to present myself as the Messiah and therefore I'm going to, okay, go get me these donkeys. And I was like, it's, it, 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 it's a bad look, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, one thing I, I would say when we're talking about the apocalyptic idea and we're thinking about like the historical Jesus in this sort of, you know, apocalyptic consciousness, one thing that we need to keep in mind here is, um, you know, the, the possibility of sincere apocalypticism in antiquity, like this is a through line. This is not unique to Jesus as, uh, uh, you know, figures who emerged in the first century who were very strongly convinced of their own eschatological significance and were able to build up a following because of this. And again, I'm not here to label this phenomenon either good or bad. I'm just here to describe how it happened in antiquity. You know, that Jesus was one of several figures who did assign themselves this level of apocalyptic significance who did this sort of these major prophetic acts to announce themselves so uh you know i I get them mixed up theudas and the egyptian and uh Judas the Galilean, but there was uh, there was one figure who stood on the far side of the Jordan and was going to lead people across the Jordan to announce this sort of new exodus. Uh, they never got that far because Roman soldiers came out and massacred them all. Uh, there was another figure who stood on the Mount of Olives and prophesied that the walls of Jerusalem were going to fall down and that they would claim this rightful place over Israel, I, that Israel would place its reclaim its rightful place over the nations they didn't get that far as the romans rode out and slaughtered them all and with jesus we have this you know see if stop me if you can see the pattern here uh you know jesus we have this apocalyptic announcement of his presence by the process of riding a donkey into jerusalem and then subsequently going into the temple and sort of prophetically announcing its imminent destruction by overturning tables and driving out the animals and then roman soldiers come and uh kill him so you know again this is a this is a cycle that happens in history i don't think it is i i don't think at all it's uh it's insincere i think this is strongly felt and i also think that this is this is characteristic of first century apocalyptic jewish religiosity you know i don't think we're i i don't want to assign anachronistic categories here of you know a Christian figure assigning himself Christian significance to Jews. You know, this is a this is an in-house phenomenon. This is something that just keeps happening in the first century. In response to Roman oppression, in response to dissatisfaction with the way things uh, are economically or socially or religiously, Qumran, I think, plays a very similar role, you know, in this act of leaving uh, Jerusalem and symbolically separating yourself from the temple. So I think, you know, on one hand, um, I get the description of it is contrived, but I also think that when we look at the phenomenon of how frequently this happens and how often this is some way that people respond to their situation, there's something really interesting sociologically there that's for sure the the interesting sociological phenomena just the sheer amount of upheaval in that period is astounding yeah and and yeah to, to point to the sociology I, I think is really important the fact that you're doing that i want to ask you a question about your work because yeah. you're a phd candidate uh-huh. 
And you're a believer. You're a person uh-huh. of faith. Yeah, I'm a right? Christian. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I imagine that some of the historical critical work that you're involved in would not be very well received in the pews. Is that true? False? It depends on the church. It depends okay. on the church. I mean, um, I have a leg up with my church because I'm married to the pastor. So oh. <laughs> that's good. No one yeah. gives her a hard time. No. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I think it depends. And, you know, the, the this question of how historical criticism and faith get along is a is a long one in uh, Anglophone Christianity. I think, you know, this has been a problem since the 1800s. And, you know, I think there have been historically two ways to deal with it. I think one is the more fundamentalist impulse of the rejection of historical criticism and sort of the, uh, you know, embrace of naive biblicism or, um, you know, sort of the plain text approach. But I also think there's the more mainline approach that is very comfortable using this as, you know, one tool of theology alongside several. Uh, you know, I think we have a lot of tools with which to think theologically in the church that aren't necessarily the historical critical reading of the Bible or even necessarily the Bible itself. There are a lot of sources of theology. Uh, so I, I, I don't see any inherent tension. You know, I, I would... There would be a problem if I was going to a like strongly biblicist church. That would be that would be an issue. But I also think that the stream of um, I think the stream of Christianity is bright, broad enough to accommodate this. And uh, more to the point, it better be broad enough to accommodate this because it exists. And this is what this is the text we have to work with. I think theology can and does accommodate it. That's an ongoing tension that I think a lot of Christian scholars can face. But I think that one thing is the more time we spend reflecting on it, you know, you just, you learn to hold things loosely. And sometimes you don't necessarily understand how something would fit into your faith. And that's where you just have to, you know, accept certain things and just wait and sometimes meditate on it for a long time and think through how things fit. And while I will be the first to hold to the importance of scripture, I think within the church, the primary thing is, is the kerygma. It's this, Mm -hmm. it's the gospel itself. It's this belief. What's the kerygma? Laura. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. The the kerygma is just sort of shorthand for what is the, you know, it's, it's Greek for seed. So, or like the more the kernel of the inside of the seed. And uh, it's a shorthand way of describing the most basic message of Christian teaching, which is the death and resurrection of Christ. And I'm very comfortable with that being the one lodestar of Christian theology and everything kind of has to bow to it and everything has to adjust around it. Um, You know, and we get into some challenges when we're talking about Old Testament interpretation there, because I think we can slide into some very appropriative positions then when we're using that to read the Old Testament. But, you know, we we can talk about how to do that. Uh, but generally speaking, I'm very comfortable with the idea that the death and resurrection of Jesus is in that being the center point of what God is like. That whole idea um, of the kerygma as the basic, you know, this seed, these are the foundational points. And I, I mean, cause there are times where I'm like, I just don't see how all this fits with my understanding, but I go back to those majoring on the majors and holding other things loosely, being willing to grow in my understanding interpretation. I know 
Laura and I had a professor that would always talk about writing his interpretation in soft lead pencil. And I don't know if I've said it here before, but I'll probably say it a million times. I have to be willing to grow and change in my understanding and perspective. And so holding things loosely, but seeking to be faithful And there can be a tension there. And with me focusing on the Old Testament, I totally get that. But I try to come at it from two angles. I try to start with it, understanding it on its own terms, and then later saying, okay, so how does this tie in with the what I would call the wider canon of the scripture, which is going to take into account the New Testament piece? So I I have different ways and lenses that I approach it from. But I think that gives us a chance to kind of start talking about Zechariah because we've really focused on how Matthew is using this. But I can remember, Mayor, when we first started talking about this verse, I said, what do Jews do with this? Mm -hmm. Because Christians come and they read, this is about Messiah. This is what this is about. And I said, okay, Mayor, what did you say? So I was want to add one little more point to this. There are a lot of sacred cows in Christian discourse that get grandfathered into this that have absolutely no bearing on your, on the validity of what I would say is the gospel. Like there is, there is no, I feel no obligation as a Christian to believe Matthew is a good writer. For instance, (laughs) I feel no obligation to believe that. Wow. That's fascinating to me. Yeah. Like I I think, I I think Matthew makes choices as a writer that I don't understand because I'm 2000 years on from this. And I think there are other people who are reading Matthew's gospel probably contemporary with him who would be utterly dumbfounded by what he's doing and that's okay i don't feel any i don't feel any need to defend matthew the interpreter matthew the stylist matthew the writer i think it can be true that he is doing something really idiosyncratic because of his idiosyncratic place in history having just lived through the destruction of jerusalem and being very committed to the messianic status of a man who's been dead for 30 years uh you know i think we can appreciate the effect that that has a tremendous amount of impact on the way he writes and appreciate that as a product of who he is and where he's writing from. I don't think anyone would say that this is like great Greek or something. Right. Of course. Yeah. I think, think, you know, we expect this to be high literature, which it's not wasn't at least stylistically. And it didn't intend to be important literature, but it's not stylistically. No, it's written. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. The canon of the New Testament is written in basically workman Greek, you know, like the kind of thing you would write like a trade manual. And this is you not know. Plato's Greek. No, no. I didn't read much New Testament in Greek, but after I had spent a few years with Plato, I took a look at it and I just felt like, oh, this is much simpler. Yeah, it is. It is. The syntax is very basic. It's written to be functional. So do we want to tackle Zechariah 9? Mary, you want to tell us, yeah. you know, where you came from? Because I was actually very surprised by your answer, probably shouldn't have been, but I was. Ah, okay. Well, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to recreate that surprise because I don't remember what my answer was. My gut reaction to Zachariah, to to Zachariah is like, well, there's a book we don't know much about. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, there are passages that we, we read every year. Actually, the two passages that I can think of offhand that we read from this every year in our, our cycle, our annual cycle of reading Haftarah, the sections from the, the prophets that go along with the, the yearly cycle of Torah portions and, uh, and the holidays, is uh, we, we read the, the section about the, the olives flowing into the menorah, into the uh-huh. lamp, and mm-hmm. that, that vision there. 
And right in that vision, we read this for Hanukkah, right, which makes sense with the menorah and the oil and the, that whole story. <laughs> the shocking thing there is at one point you have Zechariah, Zechariah, he turns to the angel who's giving him this vision and he says, I don't get it. And the angel says, don't you get it? And he says, no, I just told you, I don't get it. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, that's like, that's my vision of Zechariah right now. <laughs> I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> it doesn't like, yeah, I'm not sure. So then, uh, of course, the angel has to go and give him the interpretation. But then you have to wonder, well, okay, so what does that interpretation have to do with, with the metaphor that he received, with the vision that he received? Okay, so it's interesting that he doesn't get it. Um, maybe that's maybe that's a critical part of the story, not an incidental part even. And then the on Sukkot we read Zechariah 14, which is super apocalyptic and this vision of the future. And again, like we don't spend a lot of time with that text trying to figure out the particulars of what it means. Mm-hmm. And I think for us, it's really important to us that we don't try to understand the particulars. Because in, in a sense, it doesn't, make sense for us, it doesn't make sense for us to be interested in the particulars of this stage of history. Mm-hmm. Maimonides actually writes about this as one of the very last things that he writes in Mishnah Torah, his book of law. He writes that these prophecies in the, in the end of history, you know, people will understand which parts were metaphorical and which parts were uh, meant to be taken literally and fulfilled. And, mm-hmm. But up until that point, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the the fact that we don't know allows for a relationship. If we were to know, then like I was um, perhaps unjustifiably uh, reading uh, Matthew um, with, the, with the donkeys, <laughs> then it would be very easy for people to come along and say, ha, ah, look, I'm the Messiah because I did these things in this mechanical fashion. You know, I, I rode these donkeys, therefore I'm the Messiah. I fulfilled X, Y, Z, therefore I'm the Messiah. Um, not necessarily that we're so interested in becoming the messiah because we we don't have such a good track record i mean jews who who are considered messiahs don't um it hasn't worked out <laughs> like they, they they wind up dead but so when when jen asked me you know what what do you know about uh zachariah 9 9 my mm-hmm. answer is not very much yeah um yeah so so then i i went and i started to look at commentaries the classical commentary by rashi uh, says something that really caught my attention. And it's not what he says so much as how he says it. When you have an apocalyptic vision, a vision of the future, you might think that you know, there's there's not much you can do with that as a commentator in some sense, right? If you want to find what's meaningful for your life, then those visions are going to be evocative and poetic. And it's important to know what they say so that you can recognize what's being said when it occurs and and participate in the the process of history unfolding. But as a for your day-to-day mundane life you know what can you draw from those not much so if you're if you're a commentator you want to maximize the amount to which things are not apocalyptic Mm -hmm. and instead read it on a maximally like i don't know ethical level or however you know whatever the the alternative to that would be you know what does this how does this bear directly on my life and behavior and and my perspective uh, on the world. So here's my translation of Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion, trumpet, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king shall come for you. He is righteous and liberated, dependent and riding on a donkey, and on a he-ass, son of she-donkeys. So Rashi comments on this. 
This is impossible to understand except as referring to Messiah. Like, I really want a more practical interpretation of this. I um, love the evident disappointment. It's like, oh, okay, well, this is what I can Oh, do. damn it, it's just the Messiah. It's one of those other messianic things. Like, okay, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, we know he's coming. But like, <laughs> <laughs> That's delightful, I love that. Yeah. And then this is interesting. This is a very different perspective from a, another commentator slightly afterwards in history. So Rashi was in France. He's a formative thinker in, in Ashkenazi Jewry. So formative thinker in Sephardi Jewry, Rabbi Avram Ibn Ezra is uh, writing just a little bit after Rashi. And he says, there are those who say that this refers to the Mashiach ben David, the Messiah through David. And there are those who say that this refers to the Messiah via Yosef, uh, mm-hmm. through Joseph. I, I don't know, is this a thing with you guys? Do you, do you have a, a notion of Messiah, son of David, and Messiah, son of Yosef? No. I don't know about, not, jo- not uh, Joseph, but what you have in, um, sorry, I'm using the English-sized version because I don't want to make an idiot of myself, but the, you do have the two Messiah idea in Qumran, yeah. Uh, where you have the Levite Messiah and the Judaite Messiah. So uh, but that's I, not I, in contemporary Christianity. Yeah. Right. right. No, no, no. Yeah. No. Uh, that's the okay. So that, that's the that's another thing about our whole concept of Messiah. I mean, like th- this is this is a long I, I mean, I'd love to get into this, but um the the notion of Messiah for us is extremely mundane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It just means that you are anointed. Yeah. Literally, that's sort of yeah. Christ comes from the Greek word meaning anointed. Mm-hmm. Messiah in English comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach, meaning anointed. And there are leaders of our people who have to be anointed. A king is anointed and the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, is anointed. So the Messiah through Levi, like you were saying in Qumran, would very clearly refer to the, the high priest. It's not enough to have one Messiah. You have to have two Messiahs. Oh, you mean at different points in history? No, no, no. I mean, like, if you have a functioning temple and a functioning government, then it must be that you have two messiahs because your king was anointed mm-hmm. and your queen right. was anointed. Right, for sure. Right. So Rabbi Avraham, he says, so there are some who say that this refers to the Messiah through David and some who say this refers to the Messiah through Joseph. And then he brings an opinion by somebody else who says, actually, this is referring to Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Uh, mm-hmm. He continues and he says, but actually my opinion is that this refers to Yehuda ben Hashmanai. This refers to, to Judah the Maccabee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So whereas mm-hmm. Rashi looks at this referring to a future Messiah, yeah. Rabbi Avraham looks at it as referring to a past Messiah. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was future relative to Zechariah. Right, yeah. Past relative to Rabbi yeah. Avraham. But but there's an interesting parallel there because just like what we've got with Matthew using history to interpret uh, an event with the knowledge of Scripture in the background, you've got that too, that you've got someone that's using an historical event and using the Scripture and then interpreting that the same way, right? right? I mean... I don't want to say that these are absolutely equal parallels, but in both cases, we've got an historical event and then someone who knows scripture, who's then putting those two together, using one to help understand the other. Is that that mm-hmm. fair? 
Yeah, well, and Judah Maccabee would have been in this same, you know, general time frame that we're talking about. So this would feed back into what Laura was saying earlier about this was a way of thinking and symbolic action yeah. that sociologically is something that's going on. And so we're actually, that would seem to fit in with another piece of what Laura was just saying earlier, back to the idea that it was contrived. Mm -hmm. Our approach to the Messiah in particular and to, to prophecy in general is extremely empirical. So if somebody comes along and presents himself as a prophet, what you do is you test him and you ask him for some signs. Mm -hmm. And you do it until he can adequately demonstrate that he can predict the future, which is not necessarily what a prophet is for, mm -hmm. um, but, but it's an aspect of prophecy. Mm -hmm. And but you use it in order to, to figure out, you know, is this person for real? Mm -hmm. And and if anything he says doesn't work out, then you kill him. Mm -hmm. Get rid of that that's guy. That's coming out of Deuteronomy, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's coming out of Deuteronomy. Yeah. And But if he's done this a bunch, or if there are established prophets who vouch for him, then you say, oh, okay, this is a real guy. And then you're absolutely obligated to listen to him. If eventually something doesn't work out, then he becomes liable for it. But but your obligation, it's like in science, right? Like you follow right. the best theory that you have until it's proven otherwise. So once yeah. you've established that this person is reliable, you are absolutely obligated to go with him. And hopefully nothing doesn't work out after that. In particular with the, the Messiah, Maimonides writes, again, this is at the, the very end uh, in the closing chapters of his great legal work, the Mishnah Torah. He says, if a king will arise from the house of David who diligently contemplates the Torah and observes its mitzvot as prescribed by the written Torah and the oral Torah as David, his ancestor, and he'll compel all of Israel to walk in the way of the Torah and rectify the, the breaches in its observance, and then he'll fight the wars of God, we may with assurance consider him the Mashiach, Messiah. And because of that, Rabbi Akiva considered Bar Kochva, don't know how you do that in English, he That's close enough. <laughs> okay. All right. So so he considered him the Messiah. Right. And and then when Bar Kokhba's rebellion against Rome didn't work out, I was like, well, okay, I was wrong. Yeah. Right? yeah. But but it, it didn't generate a theological crisis. It was just like, mm -hmm. okay, like he did everything along the way to make it to make it look like this was going to work out, and then then it didn't. Maimonides continues: if he succeeds in the above and builds the temple in its place and gathers the dispersed of Israel, the diaspora and the lost tribes, then he is definitely the Mashiach. He's definitely the Messiah. Once you've definitely confirmed he's the Messiah, is there anything left to do? Because it sounds like how you know he's the Messiah is, well, he does everything the Messiah is supposed to do. Because, you know, with, with, these, follow, with these figures in the first century, there's a lot of inspiring the creation of followers so that you can go and accomplish this thing that the Messiah is going to accomplish. And it kind of sounds like what you're describing is the opposite, is that once the Messiah has gotten everything on lock, then you know he's the Messiah. Is there, what is the proper response to the Messiah once that happens? So that, that's exactly what he writes right after okay. the part that I wrote. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, that is, it's yeah. perfect, the, the question, right? So then he says, uh, so he, the, the Messiah, will improve the entire world, motivating all mm -hmm. the nations to serve God together as uh, Zephaniah states. Zephaniah, how do you say it? Zephaniah? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Okay, hey, I got it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so this we can also the, figure it out. From yeah, I okay. just have I just have to say it to myself quietly, and then I figure yeah. it out. So yeah. yeah. So so uh, as Stefania says, chapter three, verse nine, uh, I will transform the peoples to a pure language, 
and they will uh, that they will all call upon the name of God and serve him with one purpose. So like you were saying, then there's there's a response from people. Mm-hmm. But um, but the responsibility of the Messiah is not to cultivate followers. The mm-hmm. responsibility is to, Maimonides talks us that earlier, it's to fight the wars that need to be fought and to build mm-hmm. the temple. Mm-hmm. That's what he does. So I have a small question then. If we're talking about one of the responsibilities of a Messiah is to fight the wars that need to be fought, that creates an interesting presentation of Jesus then riding in on a donkey and if the donkey's supposed to represent peace. So I want to go back to Jen and Laura and ask, how do we interpret Jesus riding in on a donkey if a donkey is supposed to represent peace in light of what Mary just said? Well, as I was listening to Mayor, it was kind of along those same lines, although not specifically addressing Jesus. Because if you read the first eight verses of Zechariah 9, so back to our discussion, we were talking about the fulfillment text in Matthew 21, which cites or draws on at least part of Zechariah 9.9. But if we go to the eight verses before that, those verses, at least in academic reading and interpretation with a historical critical approach, are focusing on God as the divine warrior who is fighting the battle himself. It's focusing on God as the warrior. It's not talking about a king. Now, you might infer that, hey, there's a king involved, but that's not the way the text is depicting itself. That's that's there, perfect. That's perfect. That's perfect. Okay. The, the, it's a very fundamental image for us. Adonai ish milchama is mm-hmm. the, the phrase in Exodus. When we cross the sea, Moses in his song goes so far as to say that Hashem, the four-letter name of God, mm-hmm. is an Ish Milchama, is a, a man yeah. of war. That's an image that continues on to the extent that actually right here on Zechariah 9.9, mm-hmm. when uh, Malbim, Malbim is now uh, a very modern commentator. He's from like maybe 200 years ago. Malbim comments there that where the verses at Sadiq Shah. This person riding on the donkey yeah. is a righteous and and liberated Noshah. That that he is Sadiq Ben Noshah Bashem. That he is liberated by Hashem. That he is liberated by God. And the point is there that all the power behind this person is coming from God. It's not through his strength. It's not through, uh, like we say, actually elsewhere, and I think it's in Zechariah, right? I think it's in uh, exactly that portion that we read about uh, the menorah. Um, not by might, not by power, rather through my spirit. Um, and this is something I always talk about with my kids. You know, it's like, you know, my, my boys get into this cartoon or that cartoon where there's fighting and weapons and, oh, this weapon is so great or this army is so powerful or whatever it is. And it's like, no, that, that, that's not what it's about. That's not what we're about. Well, and that's exactly where I was going. And I was actually interested because I looked at a couple of different translations of those very words that you talked about. And I think you translated them as, did you say righteous? and liberated. It's very interesting because in some of the English translations that I was reading, I saw various things like victorious and triumphant or righteous and victorious and, and all of these things. And I think when we read it, 
what's interesting is those words, that part is actually omitted from Matthew, Laura. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and that gets at, you know, what tradition is Matthew using or is he adapting on the fly? Yeah. Yeah. Which could be, you know, I'm assuming is an option, but I think we tend to import things into the idea that he is victorious. I actually, I rendered it having salvation. Of course, salvation within Christianity can be a loaded term, but so I kind of liked that idea of liberated, but it's the idea of having been delivered by someone else. It's a passive participle. It's a passive form, at least in, you know, my reading and understanding. So I think it's interesting that I saw all these things in English translation that seemed to be giving the glory and the victory to this king who is coming in on a donkey, whereas the imagery of the donkey itself and then the language when you start digging in, it very much is, this has been done by God. Mm -hmm. And then the king comes in himself after because God has already won the battle, so to speak. And then you go into... To Frank's point about the donkey as representing peace, it's mm-hmm. it's a funny juxtaposition because in the verses after 9-9, you get into what exactly. seems to be a very severe war. And right. so how do we understand that in terms of like, so it's not through his own power that there is any kind of liberation, but... But then there is a war afterwards. So maybe we're talking about different stages of something or or different dimensions of something. Yeah. Again, I'm not well, sure. It's, no. It's there are these different <laughs> pieces happening. And I think that that's a part of it. Yeah. So I'll just read. This is coming out of the NIV. If you go into verse 10, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will, he meaning the king who has ridden in on the donkey, he will proclaim peace to the nations and his rule will extend from sea to sea. So he's, he's proclaiming it, but, but God is the one that is bringing it. Can I throw in some complications real fast? Oh, just thinking do. about yeah, Matthew. Please, yeah. go for it. So I think, I, I mean, I think the relative, you know, whatever you want to say about what the donkey symbolizes, there's some complications to the relative peacefulness of Matthew's portrayal of Jesus. Mm. So the one thing, the, the through line that he's getting from Mark, it's not as big of an emphasis in Matthew, but in Mark, um, there's the phenomenon of Jesus being in open warfare with demons. So the exorcism idea is extremely front and center in mark and matthew takes over a lot of those stories and a lot of that is presented in this sort of like eschatological warfare uh imagery is jesus versus demons so this is a huge part of jesus's identity let's pause let's define eschatological oh sorry eschatological means things pertaining to the end of the world whether you mean the actual end of the world or in some kind of like historically theologically loaded time that functions as an endpoint. so people christians often talk about the time of jesus's eschatological even though it isn't the actual end of the world it just signifies these final things happening. does not involve any kirk cameron movies as well no <laughs> it can though it can but uh that's a discussion for another day yeah okay <laughs> yeah um the other thing is uh, you know the the other thing to talk about is that Matthew doesn't really think Jesus comes to Jerusalem to proclaim peace to Jerusalem at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first thing Jesus does when he gets to Jerusalem is he goes into the temple 
and uh, he sacks it and he trashes it uh, because he is prefiguring the imminent destruction of the temple. Uh, at least this is how that action is commonly understood, that the, there is a warning of the Jewish war there. And then Jesus again prophecies the destruction of the temple the final time he leaves it and predicts the, the, uh, the siege and the destruction of the temple when the Romans invade. So I, I think there's a lot of ambiguity in the relative peacefulness of this image. You know, on one hand, Jesus, I, I guess you could say by virtue of riding a donkey, Jesus isn't there to go to war with Jerusalem, but he's definitely not coming with a lot of good news for it. So I think there's a real, there's a real tension there. And um, so we're seeing some of the tension between the original text and the original right. context, for wherein sure. at least in the verses prior, the battle has already been won right. to some extent. And then you've got the, the king coming in. And so then we would get into some of the tensions that we talk about, I think, in the New Testament side of things as the already not yet yeah. there are things that have already happened there's an extent to which the eschaton has the the final days have begun but there's also this sense that there is still much in the future yeah. and there's just the authorial perspective of you know people writing after the fact who know how this ends you know yeah. who know that the days of jesus you know 40 years after the fact all, all those buildings jesus was in weren't there anymore so yeah. i i think that affects the the shaping of the material quite a bit so um so there's there's some challenges there i think i was wondering about this because the i'm not sure if this is actually a phrase that's used in in christianity but i have the stereotype of the image of prince of peace you know, mm -hmm. as something that, that I hear. Mm -hmm. And then in this particular chapter in, in Matthew, as you were saying before, mm -hmm. based on uh, I, Mark, you were mentioning, but right here in Matthew, you know, we go from, from riding on the donkey to, like you were saying, there are vulgar ways, you know, I attempted to say this, but, you know, really messing stuff up in the temple mm -hmm. like this is i that that's the second yeah. video that that i couldn't remember before oh uh, yeah the cleansing of the temple video that well, well, no did. what you were talking oh. about um uh why was matt uh, why was jesus uh killed right mm -hmm. so he's basically launching i don't want to say he's launching rebellion against rome but the yeah. civic unrest in yeah. the, the civic center of everything at a very sensitive time of year yeah and this is very threatening to roman power to do such yeah. a thing yeah, uh, and temple authorities who it's very much within their best yeah. interest to keep the peace. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah but like to, to see that and to, well, hold on. This doesn't look like a, a prince of peace. And cursing a fig tree is like, I mean, like, what's yeah. going on here? This Again, huge, huge uh, prefiguration of the destruction of the temple. The whole, you know, he, in Mark, he, on his way into the temple, he curses the tree. He speaks against the temple and then he comes right back out. And the tree, well, he doesn't speak against it. There's people want to really want to fight about that one but he uh he he says it's going to be destroyed and then he comes back out and the tree's dead you know so i think there is a lot to be said there that you know uh, there's a lot of ominous stuff happening here for people who aren't familiar with how these fulfillment texts have been used and how they work that we're getting into these many layers and there's very thorny issues when we start discussing them if i can go back to the donkey for a minute it's interesting, Frank, that you picked up on the donkey as a as a Near Eastern symbol of peace being in contrast with a horse. And I'm looking at rabbinical commentaries, and while the horse is very clearly seen as a war machine, right. and there's very strong precedent for seeing the horse that way in the Hebrew scriptures, also, you know, even in uh, Deuteronomy, 
where there's a prohibition on the king multiplying horses and like yeah the king needs to fight the wars but he shouldn't make a war machine that's so powerful that you're going to wind up going down back to egypt to get more mm -hmm. horses right mm -hmm. it's interesting that egypt's a center both for horses and for donkeys mm -hmm. um, egypt by the way even in the times of the mishnah so we're talking like second century third century egypt is still known for the at that point in time is still known for the quality of its donkeys and mm -hmm. and it always strikes me reading about joseph and his brothers or the brothers of joseph when they go down into egypt and they mm -hmm. they're you know, encountering Joseph without quite realizing it, that they're very concerned about their donkeys. We could get killed and lose our donkeys. Like, what's going to happen? They, That's really they, interesting. I hadn't yeah, thought about that. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know exactly what to do with that, but there's something about Egypt and donkeys. The significance of the donkey, as the rabbinic commentators are looking at it, is uh, not as a symbol of peace at all, but as representing the humility and the dependence mm -hmm. right. of the person riding it. This is not a person who is is making a big deal out of himself. This is not a person who is able to save the world by himself or do anything because he, he doesn't have the means to do it. Right. Ani, ani um, is the, the word in the verse, and it uh, usually it, it's translatable as poor. But more mm -hmm. fundamentally, it means dependent. It's also uh, the, the word behind like... Um, uh, it's the same word as humility, um, but but humility essentially means responsive. Like the fundamental thing here is that the person is, uh, the ani is in a position of needing to respond, of being dependent on things other than their self. Yeah. And one of the things that's been interesting, again, I've been reading up a lot on donkeys and behavior because in my world, like everything matters and inter interplays together is that one of the things that I've learned is like donkeys are protect animals. You can actually mm -hmm. get a donkey and you put it with a flock and they mm. are trained and used to protect flocks. They're not quite as good as like a border collie, but that's legitimately one of the purposes of a donkey. This is, is crazy to me. Like, that I can't, is wild. That's amazing. Yeah. It's, a, it's a protector animal. And here's what's interesting. And this is why I like seeing the donkey as this amazing symbolism back into why is a king riding on a pack animal? Because that's the primary purpose of the donkey is when well, you just put some stuff on it and carry it. And so how does this look like humility? Well, it is territorial. That's why it's a protective animal. It's unlike dogs that would be loyal and they would just protect because you said uh, Fido protect. Um, a donkey just cares about its territory. Mm -hmm. It doesn't want really bad news bears kind of critters getting up all in its grill. Mm -hmm. And the donkey is different from the horse, even in how it attacks, that it'll attack with both front legs and hind legs. So it's way more aggressive in how it attacks, which is why it's useful for being a, a protector animal. And like, there's dozens of articles from vets on exactly when and how to use a donkey to protect your livestock. Mm -hmm. And for the king to be riding on this, like, well, you're riding on an animal that's territorial that is protective because, well, it's, I'm going to protect my land. So I'm going to protect everything else that's on my land. It's a defensive, passive form of aggression where I'm not going to go out and make trouble for everyone else. But if you come to me and make trouble, well, I'm going to protect. So I, I think that's just interesting symbolism, especially when you look at Zechariah and you look at what happens in verse 10, when it, it says, and I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and from Jerusalem. Like, we're talking about someone who's riding low on a humble animal 
uh, as peace, an animal that could be used uh, to protect the flock. Now we're talking about the horse from Jerusalem and a chariot and donkeys never would have been put together in a chariot. That's one of the things mm-hmm. that I learned is like, they just don't want to play like that. They like yeah. going solo. It's a, this amazing transition from you know, this lowly animal who's very chill and very docile, unless you get up in its grill to use a very technical term from the Hebrew. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you, you transition to this horse that can, that, you know, yeah, they're bigger and taller. And I've ridden some very tall horses that is terrifying because I'm a short guy. It, it's this amazing contrast in symbolism. And so like, th- that's really interesting to learn that about, mm-hmm. you know, how it's an animal of humility and all the different ways that it can be an animal of humility. And what does that mean when a Messiah is writing on this? We come at it from a New Testament perspective or looking at for a Messiah or an eschatological Messiah. It's easy to miss part of what's going on. This is a text that is being written to people who are slowly returning from exile and that Zechariah is a book is focused on restoration and return from exile. And there's a lot of that imagery going on here. And then how might that fit in the second temple period and the understanding and expectations? One of the questions it then raises for me, for Mare, would be, how does that fit with contemporary understanding? Are the Jews still in exile? Are they returned? What is it that says, okay, we are, we have been restored? Is it the rebuilding of the temple? Uh, How are you reading that? Or how would you read it these days in these ideas of exile and restoration? Yeah, I'd be curious how how verse 16 plays out. Yeah, let's take a look at that first. Yeah, and the Lord their God shall save them uh, in that day as the flock of his people, for they shall be as the stones of a crown glittering over his land. It's from an older JPS. So. I, I was thinking, hey, I like that translation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Why are you pulling? Because you're looking at that verse as ultimately where we're going? I'm wondering. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, mic adjustment. I wasn't sure we'd actually get to this, but... You guys are giving me quite a setup to talk about one of my favorite passages in Zachariah. This is really an amazing place to end. I prepared this ahead of time, and I uh, translated it invested some time in learning the commentators, and I I don't want to schlep you through all of that. I'm not even going to bother reading the original here. I just, I think it'll be more powerful if I just read my translation. So what do we Jews do with these visions of the future? Here in the land of Israel today, we live it. These verses, some of them, are written on the square in front of my kids' school in the Jewish quarter of the old city of Jerusalem, And in a way, they're written on every square in Israel today. It's truly amazing to live here and to to live these verses that I want to read to you. So this is Zechariah chapter 8, verses 4 through 8. This is what the Lord of hosts said. Again will old men and old women sit in the squares of Jerusalem, even so old they have canes in their hands. And the city squares will fill up with boys and girls, playing in its squares. This is what the Lord of hosts said. When it amazes this people's remnant in those days, 
It will amaze me too, says the Lord of hosts. This is what the Lord of hosts said. Look at me rescuing my people from the land where the sun rises and the land where the sun sets. I will bring them and they will dwell within Jerusalem and they will be a people for me and I will be God for them in truth and in righteousness. Laura, we would love to have you back and yeah. a little bit more, but I think for now it might just be good to encourage our listeners Take some time, go read Zechariah. What yeah. do you see? And how are you reading it, especially if you're reading it through the lens of Jesus? But then how do you read it if you're trying to read it without the lens of Jesus? And I guess that would be my encouragement as a Hebrew Bible Old Testament professor to help understand. And then maybe another day we can dig into how we read the prophets differently as Jews and Christians. For sure. For sure. No, I I think that, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and uh, Zephaniah are all just essential background reading for Matthew and not just as background, but as texts in their own right and as texts that deserve to be understood in their own context. Laura, thank you. you. Oh my gosh, thank you guys so much for inviting me. This is really fun. We'll be excited to have you come back yeah no i'd be happy to totally yeah there's a lot of material to talk about with matthew so uh yeah but i can also talk about other things (laughs) (laughs) why would we want to do that well thanks guys great to meet all of you and uh i look forward to listening to more of the show thank you thank you laura you have a great one